chapter 9 this morning. We've been working our way through Luke now for the last several months. We'll be here um, for the foreseeable future. If you haven't been with us before at Redeemer, that's what we tend to do. It's just starting a book and then work through it chapter by chapter, however long it takes. Um, and so just to give you a little bit of context as, as to where we are, um, we, Jesus has been ministering, has been casting out demons, has been healing, has been teaching, um, crowds have been gathering. And the question that's just kind of permeated the first eight and a half or so chapters of Luke is, is who, who is he? Like, who is this Jesus? Right, we see Herod asking it. We see the crowds asking it. It's a question that's supposed to be resonating in our hearts and minds is, who is this one that's doing these things? And last week we saw one of the most familiar, famous stories outside of um, Christmas and Easter, um, the feeding of the 5,000. It's the only miracle that's um, listed in all four Gospels. And at the end of that, um, he asked the disciples, so who do you say that I am? Right? And, and they say, well, the crowds are saying, you know, maybe you're John the Baptist, or maybe you're a prophet that's come back, or maybe you're Elijah. And he goes, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. Right? This, this confession of you, you are the anointed one of God. And that's where we left off, kind of this, this cliffhanger. And so we're going to pick up, beginning in verse 18, we're going to read um, those verses from last week and then continue. Um, and now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do you, the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So Peter has this like, great like, confession of faith. Right? You are the Christ, the anointed one. And then maybe um, somewhat shockingly, Jesus says, okay, don't tell anybody. I command them, stay quiet about this. And, and the question that we should ask is why? Why does he immediately tell them when, when they've had this great confession of faith? And by the way, um, it, you know, there would be those who would say, like, you know, if someone thinks they're God, they're a megalomaniac. Right? And Jesus does not say, he does not demure here and say, well, no, it's not me. He affirms it. And then he tells them, though, to be quiet about it. Why? Because there's a shift that we're going to begin to see here in this gospel from this kind of outward-facing ministry that he has um, done to the crowds, where he's going to really begin to focus in and teach to the disciples, the twelve and the larger um, crowd of disciples, um, about who he is. And he's going to begin to prepare them for suffering and for his departure. And so there's a shift that's taking place. 
And so what's happening, why he tells them to be quiet, is because he needs there to be a time of instruction, right? a time of preparation, because he knows that verse 22 is going to happen, that the Son of Man will suffer many things, he'll be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. This is the whole of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish um, ruling council, and he'll be killed. Right? He's like, listen, because those things are going to happen, I need you to be quiet about this at the moment. Right? There will be a day where you need to be bold in public. Right? We see that in the sequel to Luke in Acts. that The disciples go out boldly proclaiming, um, not worrying about um, what the government tells of them, not, not worrying about what others say or if their lives are at risk. They go boldly in public. But for a moment... He has to reorient their mind around the type of Messiah that He is going to be because it is not going to be what they've anticipated or expected. And so He asks them to be silent temporarily about this confession of belief. Mostly because He's going to be different than they anticipated. Listen, the expectation um, in Israel for the Jews would have been, hey, there's one like David who's coming. Right? David, this conquering king. One like Moses who is coming. The one that led them out of, of Egypt from their enslavers. And so the idea has um, emerged over the, the generations that when the Messiah comes, He will overthrow whoever is over us. In this case, it's Rome. right? And He will lead us back to our homeland. We will have our land. We will have our people. We will have our identity. We will rule ourselves. And we will be known, a light to the world. right? So they're anticipating a strong leader, a military leader. And yet, he tells them here, you're right, I am that one. And you can almost imagine the enthusiasm as they're seeing him heal and do all these miracles, and he's fed the 5,000, he's raised the dead, and he's cast out demons. And then when he says, you're right, it is me, that they're going, okay, Rome's going to get it. And then he immediately says, but our people... The son of, like, are gonna, I'm going to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He's like, our leaders, our religious leaders are going to kill me and reject me. And I'm going to suffer. And you can imagine in this, in this scene here, as, as hopeful as they have been, the celebrity kind of crowd that has created around them, um, the expectation, the joy, the anticipation, all the good that's happening, right? They see it going one way, and Rome leaving, and now all of a sudden Jesus is going, yeah, it's not going to go the way you think it's going to go. All the stuff that you've seen is true, but it's not going to go the way that you're anticipating. The plan and the expectation are going to be different. I, I, I found this out for the first time that plans and expectations don't always match up on my honeymoon. All right? Now, some of you are going, that's cheeky, right? But that's not where we're going here. Okay. Um, so we show up two weeks after our... <laughs> you got to sit somewhere else. <laughs> so we, we show up two weeks after our wedding at um, Disney World. Right? For a trip, we have a week at Disney. And the first morning we're there... We wake up and Carmen goes, all right, what are we going to do today? And I said, we're going to see where the day takes us. He goes, no, we're not. No, we need a plan. 
Like, I want, where's the itinerary of all the things that are going to be accomplished today and then tomorrow and then the following? Like, we've got to make sure we take it all in. How are we going to do this? And I'm like, I was just going to kind of go with the flow. And we realized we don't vacation the same way on our honeymoon. And so um, my expectation of a low key, just kind of we'll see how things happen, and the, what actually happened right, did not match up. We, we got an itinerary real quick. Um, and we've learned since then how to plan a vacation together um, and that I should have had a little more conversation with her prior to planning it. Um, we learned some things, right? The plan and the expectation didn't match up. And in this moment, the disciples are believing not only are we on the cusp of Rome being overthrown, we have a front row seat to it. This guy is doing these things. How tremendous is this going to be? What does it maybe even mean for us? Like the crowds are here. This is awesome. And then Jesus says, yeah, but I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. And it's our people who are going to do it. And eventually it's going to lead to me being killed. And in Matthew and Mark, when this scene is recounted, this is the moment where Peter says, nope, not going to happen. Right? The one who's just confessed the Christ says, nope, not going to let it happen. We're, we're going to keep that from happening. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Like he says, you're thinking in a worldly sense as man would think and not as God is thinking. And so this expectation has, has changed. Right, things have gone well, and there's been some, some touches, some notes of ominous, right? That Herod says, I'd like to see this Jesus, who has already executed John the Baptist. Then we remember um, when, in chapter 2, when Mary was beginning um, to realize what was happening, that it says there will be a sword that will one day be thrust through you, right? Like this pain that's going to come through you, right? Kind of alluding to Jesus' death. Um, in, in Luke 5.35, um, when he is accused of, why do you and your disciples not fast? And he says, well, it's because the bridegroom is here. The party is here. But when the bridegroom is taken, they'll fast. Right? There's these, these kind of ominous undertones that have been coming. And now Jesus begins to give them eyes and mind to see what is taking place here. He's also letting Theophilus and those who would read this know Hey, this is not unexpected. This is the plan. The, the, the pushback, the doubt, all those things we, we knew was going to happen, this is unexpected from man, is not unexpected from God. And he leaves them, even in verse 22, this touch of hope, right? I'm going to be rejected, what? I'm going to be um, suffer, what? I'm going to be killed, what? But on the third day I'll be raised. Right? Where we've had mostly good news with this touch of ominous, now we're seeing kind of this, this fear happening, but with a touch of hope that he is going to be raised. And now he's telling them, this is not what you expected or anticipated. We need some time for this to seek in. And so you've got to keep your mouth quiet right? so that we can begin to, to bring you where you need to be in your hearts and in your minds and in your ministry to carry on once this takes place. And so because of this, it's going to affect what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's for the disciples, but it's as well for us this morning. And, and so let's simply define discipleship as this. Discipleship is following Jesus, period. Right? And so he says it's going to have an impact on it. So let's, let's continue now, beginning in verse 23. What does discipleship look like? And he said to all, the twelve and the larger 
crowd of disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Remember, he said this about coming to him once before in Luke, in, in chapter 6, in verse 46, at the end of the Sermon on the Plains, he says this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. And then he describes the man who builds his house right on the rock, has this strong foundation. So even when the storms of life come, his building stands. Right? It's not a promise the storms don't come. It's a promise that your building will stand. This is the one who comes and hears and obeys. Right? So here he's telling us, listen, if you come to me, let him deny himself and take up his cross right, and follow. He's telling them this is what it's going to look like. That, that following Jesus is active. It's not just knowledge. It's not just um, adhering to the right theological system and passing a written exam. There is action involved. When he calls the disciples to follow him right, and tells them, you're going to be made into fishers of men. What do they do? They actually get up. They leave what they're doing. They follow him. And then they correct, he's, they, they're corrected by him when necessary. They're sent out by him. They spend time with him. It's active. It's not just um, nodding your head in agreement to the right things. And so how do we follow? He says you're going to follow daily. There's going to be diligence daily. It's not a one-and-done situation. And, and so he answers the question of what it looks like to follow Right In verse 23, we see that in the, by we, we follow by denying ourselves and taking up our cross. And so when we are denying ourselves and taking up our cross, we are following Jesus. So let's look at those um, in a little closer detail. To deny yourself. There may not be a more horrific thought in our current culture than this. In a culture that's built on your truth, and my truth, and what I want, and how I'm going to do it, the thought of self-denial, like this is antithetical to everything we see in our society and our culture right now. Like this is not the norm. We are being discipled by the culture away from this, right? The question then is, who's on the throne of our life? Right? When, when what I want and what God wants come to a head, who wins? Is there even a battle? Right? Is there even... A, a wrestling at all? Who's on the throne of your life? Is it, well, this is what I feel and what I think and what I want, and since I'm on the throne, I'll do it. It's my truth. And who are you to say anything about it? Or, is it, God, this is what I want, but this is what your word says, and they're, they're, they're butting heads, and so I submit to you. I'm going to deny myself, and I'm going to submit to you, and I'm going to follow you. You're saying, you're my authority. You're my Lord. You're on the throne. And so where we see this, right, is when Scripture says something we don't like. How do we handle it? Do we ask for, for understanding and insight and wisdom and the strength to obey? Or do we say, nope, not that part. I still want Jesus, but I'm going to do my thing here. Right? Like, And we begin to separate and distance ourselves from Him. Because we're not trusting Him, and we're not following Him, and we're not denying ourselves. We are picking what we want and living that way. The idea of, of taking up 
our cross. Listen, the, the cross has become um, something we see on t-shirts and, and jewelry. Um, it's something that we're, we're comfortable with, um, putting it on logos and buildings. It, it's just, it, it's been kind of neutered of its meaning. But if, if I was to walk in this morning with a, a t-shirt on that had a noose on it, it would be visceral reaction. It would, you would think it was, you wouldn't say, look at that art. That's beautiful. You would say it was vile. It was disgusting. You would have a visceral reaction. If you walked out today and saw a noose on a tree, right, like that, it, it, because we know the history tied to it, we know the, the, the depth of the hate that's tied to it, we know the significance of it, what it's meant and what it's attempting to portray, right? Of control and power and fear and ugliness and sin. Those things, it would like, you would, you would have a response and a reaction and you wouldn't just be like, oh, that's a neat choice. It would bother you. That's, that is what the cross once was. Right? That's what it would have been in Roman culture. Would it be the same as how the, the visceral reaction you would have had to the noose because it was this constant reminder that Rome's in charge and what they say goes and what they do goes. And when they crucify people or they crucify thousands of people, right? Like they're in charge. They're in control. And so denying ourselves and taking up our cross, right, is putting on this thing, this cross beam, right? And as we're walking, we're saying, I'm submitting myself to the authority over me. In Rome, as you took up your cross, it was submitting to Rome. As you were on your way to execution and there was nothing you could do about it, you were showing you were in full submission. Taking up our cross is saying, I am dying to myself. And I'm submitting myself to King Jesus. That what He says goes, and I am bending my knee to Him. And, and right, this is uncomfortable. Right, we, we read this and we can just glide right through it, but as we really get into the grit of it, it's like, it is you saying, I was once a rebel against you. And what did Rome do to rebels? They executed them. Right? What it, we're saying, God, I was a rebel to you, but it wasn't I that went to the cross, it was Jesus who went to the cross, and he, he bore it on my behalf. And so now I will gladly bend my knee to you, and I will take up my cross daily and submit to you because you are the authority of my life. You are my king. And I will not stand as a rebel against you any longer. So taking up our cross is not a one-time thing. It is a daily thing because we are daily confronted with opportunity to sin and to struggle and to rebel against God. See, the power of sin was broken at the cross. And there will be a day where the presence of sin will be no more because we will be in the presence of God for all time. But in the moment, right, Sin is still present. And so the power has been broken, but its presence is still here. And so we are in this ongoing fight and battle as we live with the hope of the cross and the faith that it gives and the reality of where we're going. And that right now we're in the in-between. And so we have to take up our cross and submit to God on the daily, multiple times a day, as we relate to one another, as we face temptation, as we wrestle and struggle with life. Listen, it means there's a cost. And we've known that there was a cost to following Jesus in the rest of the world, 
Right? Like we know that in Yemen for you to believe might mean you lose your life literally. It can mean your kids are taken from your family literally and not ever given back. In our current world, we are, we are coming out of this strange period where this felt far-fetched. Right? Like growing up, any sort of like persecution passage felt strange to me because it just felt so removed from our current culture. And yet now it doesn't feel as far-fetched. And maybe we're not talking about people losing their life, but we live in a cancel culture that wants to destroy you in another way. And so knowing that I'm raising my children to love Jesus and hoping that He'll save them and that they'll walk with Him means the culture's going to hate them and they want to cancel them. Like, that's where we're headed. There's a cost to following Jesus, right? It's why He says this, like, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So he's saying, like, you can gain everything, and in the moment of your death, realize that apart from Jesus, it was nothing because you can't buy your salvation. You can't, you can't earn it. You can't merit it at that point. That we need Jesus. Right? And yet the world is going to say, ah, we don't like that. And how do we know? Because they rejected Jesus, the perfect version of it. They rejected Him and, and caused suffering and eventually killed Him. There is a cost. And so when we say that it's, we, we enter into our best life now or we're entering into comfort or Jesus just makes it a smooth road, we are denying the heart of following Jesus that Scripture actually portrays. That yes, there are gains and benefits in this life, but there is also suffering and tragedy and difficulty and a cost in following Jesus. So He's telling us, listen, you want to follow Me? You're no longer the center of your life. Your decision-making, it changes. And so the question then is this, is do we trust Him? Do we trust His character in the midst of this? And what we've seen in the first eight and a half chapters of Luke is he's showing, you can trust me with life. Why? Because I have the power over death. You can trust me with sickness. Why? Because I have the ability to heal. You can trust me with circumstances and torment. Why? Because I can cast out demons. You can trust me with provision. How? Because I've fed the 5,000. Right? He is showing us his character and his nature through these miracles to say, when I ask you for your life, you can trust me with it. You are safe and secure in my hands. And my strong hand will keep you. He is helping the disciples understand this over the course of three years. So that when he does, when he does die, when he is put in the tomb, they can trust and see right, that this was the plan, although it wasn't what they expected. He has been revealing to us that we can trust him and allow him to make these decisions, to guide us, that we don't have to be the sinner. He says, so you want to be in control of your life. You want to hold on to it tight? You're going to lose it. You will lose it eternally. And we've seen this, right? Someone who suffocates someone else in a relationship, right? They try to hold on emotionally or physically too tight, and what happens? They lose it. He says, you want to hold on to your life and your soul and do it your way? You might end up gaining the whole world, and you will lose your soul. And it is not a fair trade. He's like, so give it up now to me and find that you will actually find security and life and solid ground to stand on. 
So we look at our culture. We see that as, we, as folks continue to look inside and be guided by their heart and their pursuit of their heart and their truth, that there is vanity and meaninglessness, emptiness, anxiety riddled. Like there's a reason that people are hopeless. It's because they're banking on themselves and there's nothing to stand on. But we have the Creator, the Sustainer of the universe who sees you and knows you and loves you and is inviting you to give up your life in order to gain your life. This paradox. We have to understand that it will be counter-cultural. You will look crazy to reject your truth for God's truth. In a culture that says, no, 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 what do you want? Do what you want. What feels best for you to say, I want to do what God wants will look crazy. So it means discipleship is not a class you take. It is a lifestyle that we live in following Jesus as we spend our money, as we relate to our children, or our parents, or our grandparents, or our neighbors, or our coworkers, as we think about where we, where we, what we do and how we do it. In every arena of life, we're asking, like, God, what do you have for me here? What does your word say? What does it look like to deny myself and to take up my cross in this situation, in this moment, because you've given me life and I will gladly bow my knee to you. I'll gladly follow you anywhere. This church, if self is at the center, if my truth is the center and your truth is the center, where we're headed is that there is no standard and there's no sin because you can't say anything about my truth and I can't say anything about yours. But there is a standard. There is, and it's, it's, it's in Jesus. Jesus calls us to be born again. right? To die to self, to be born again. It's not you do you. With Jesus on top. It is transformation. And we get shame or glory in eternity. You get one of them. You may get glory in this life. You may be the one who inherits everything. And then you get shame for eternity. Or you may get some shame and rejection in this world. But you will get glory forever in Jesus. Listen to how he shows us this. He says, verse 26, Forever is ashamed of me and my words. Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the glory of the angels. He's talking about judgment here. He's saying there will be a day where each of us in this room will stand before God. And you will stand with Jesus at your side, pleading on your behalf, saying, He is mine and I have covered him with my life and with my death and my resurrection. He is mine. Let him in. He's a beloved son or daughter. And the Lord will say, Yes. And you will have to enter into eternal rest and glory and where you belong for all time. Or, Jesus says, if you reject me, if you continue to rebel against me, if you don't want what I have to offer, then there will be a day where you will stand before God and you will stand alone. And I will not come to your defense. You will stand alone and on your own merit, you'll be damned. Because there is no hope in that. Because you have rejected Jesus. So he's saying, so if you want to be ashamed of me in this life, you will receive shame for eternity. If you receive some shame and rejection in this life, there is glory forever in me. You believe this. Do you trust this? 
And so the question that we're asking this morning is this, is do we treasure Jesus the most? Are we willing to let Him be the Lord of our life, to guide us, to be king and on the throne, or are we wrestling Him for control? Listen to what the author of Hebrews says about Moses. This is chapter 11, uh, verses 24 through 26. It says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather, listen, to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So here you have someone who could have grown up in the lap of luxury right for 60, 80, 100 years. And he says, no, no, no. Fleeting pleasures, temporary pleasures, I want Jesus. And I'm looking forward to my treasure and my hope is eternal and lasting so I can walk away from power and money and prestige and pleasure and all of it for Jesus. Right? Moses is embodying this prior to having Jesus right here on the ground exhibiting this. But the question for us is the same. is Do we want the fleeting pleasures of sin? Or do we want Jesus? What is it that we treasure more? And the hope that Jesus is giving us here is this. is not smooth sailing in life. But here's what He says. You will never be alone and I will never forsake you. Daily, my mercies are new. My grace is sufficient for you. Daily, just like the manna. Which is why we see in the feeding of the 5,000 that He's showing us that He is the bread of life. He is the manna that will be produced day in and day out, moment by moment, circumstance by circumstance, situation by situation. Then He tells us that right, light and momentary are the trials of this world compared to the surpassing weight of glory that is coming for us. And it doesn't mean that what you feel is light or short. But there will be a day where it will feel that way compared to what you will taste and see in glory with God for all time. And so the, the deeper and the heavier your pain or suffering or tragedy is, if God could call any of that light and momentary, how significant is what's awaiting for us? It's not to negate what you're feeling now, but you have been promised a reward. And he ends this section, verse 27, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. We're going to see this twofold. That we're going to see the kingdom of God right, really exhibited and on when, when Jesus is crucified and then resurrected and ascended. Right? Like we're like, oh, everything he's promised is, has come true. That he was suffered, he was rejected, he was killed, and he was raised. The kingdom of God is here already and not yet. But next week, as we continue in Luke 9, we're going to see, right, for just a moment, that there will be some of them who will get a, a glimpse of the kingdom of God in fullness. Um, and so we, we see this is going to be fulfilled twofold. In the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, and through a, a special moment that will happen next week. This morning, would you ask yourself, where are you currently king of your life? Is there some area where you are holding back and got stiff-arming Jesus, where you would say, I love Him and I trust Him, but this is mine. Or are there some of you who would say, no, it's all mine. Then there's a call to repentance. Say, no, no, Jesus, I want to lay this down, and I'll lay it down again tomorrow if I have to, and I'll lay it again tomorrow afternoon and tomorrow evening. Right? Like I will lay it down over and over again. 
I want to walk with you and I want to trust you and I want to follow you. Help me deny myself and to take up my cross daily. So we're gonna we're gonna stand and we're gonna worship and we're gonna sing to our King. If you need someone to talk to or pray with, um, there'll be folks in the back of the room that you can come and do that. If you need to sit and let the Spirit simply minister to you and continue to work and let the Word do that this morning, um, feel the freedom to respond as the Lord is ministering and calling you today. Let's pray. Father, would you yeah, would you first let us see the, the grievous, rebellious nature of our sin? And Lord, as that would seem to overwhelm us, would we be reminded that it is your kindness that leads us to repentance? That it is not us who are crushed, but you are on our behalf. So this morning, Lord, would we gladly take up our cross? Would we gladly deny ourselves? Would we gladly bow a knee? to the King of the universe who is good and has secured us and who loves us and who knows us and who has called us to be called sons and daughters. God, would we see the significance and the bigness of You and would we gladly give our life for that? Lord, even now, would You be calling those who don't know You to believe? Would they be hearing their shepherd call them? God, for those of us who know clearly areas where we need to confess, where we need to deny ourselves, Lord, would we do that um, not out of shame this morning, Lord, but out of glad hearts that would give more of our, our, of our life to you. Lord, we trust you, we need you, we ask you to speak. In Jesus' name, amen.